I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. 20 years ago tomorrow, two planes slammed into the Twin Towers, one into the Pentagon, and one in a field in Pennsylvania. We want to take a a little different look beyond the headlines, as we try to do in our first segment every day, and look at what was it like to be on Air Force One or traveling with then-President George W. Bush when it all happened. Let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? Think again. As we try to think again about those events from 20 years ago, uh, we're going to go to uh, someone who was a real inside source, was really there for much of that history unfolding. Uh, Brian Montgomery is the former Deputy Secretary of Housing and Urban Development and Commissioner of the Federal Housing Administration under Presidents George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump. Uh, he's held numerous other positions in government and I think he's logged uh, close to a million miles, maybe more than a million miles, traveling with uh, President Bush on Air Force One. And as we talked about yesterday, uh, those who do advance work uh, for presidents uh, just do extraordinary work. You often don't think about all the logistics that go into a presidential visit anywhere, whether that's to a a school or to a rally, uh, to a meeting somewhere. Uh, Those things uh, are significant. Our good friend Ron Fox uh, actually connected us with Bryant Montgomery, who Back in uh, the days uh, leading up to and after 9-11 was uh, the guy. He was the director of presidential advance in the executive office of the president. And uh, he joins us on the line today to help us uh, walk through a few things. Brian, thanks for making time for us today. Thank you, Boyd, and thanks to Ron as well. Uh, Ron's great. Uh, Ron Fox has to be one of the the great advance men of all time. Uh, no detail ever uh, gets past Ron and uh Brian, I think you have the, those same gifts, and you did have a, a unique seat, a front row seat uh, to so much history as it occurred around 9-11, but I actually want to start today maybe on uh, the 10th of September and uh, get some perspective in terms of what you were doing, what the planning, what was happening, and uh, what you were expecting 9-11 to actually be like. I'm, I'm certain that your viewers, your listeners may recall one of the hallmarks of the Bush presidency, which we were barely in our ninth month, was education reform. Right. No child left behind. So we had traveled down to Florida. We had a stop in Jacksonville on September the 10th. We did the education event with Education Secretary Rod Page. And then we flew to Sarasota, Bradenton that evening, um, spent the night at a resort there um, in the Sarasota, Bradenton area. Uh, the president's brother, uh, Jeb Bush, was there and some friends. And it was appeared to be just any normal day. And uh, we spent the night at the hotel and, of course, got up the next morning, uh, loaded up the motorcade and headed toward Mabuka Elementary School. 
And so as you, you got there to the school and again, uh, advance, you're, you're doing all the orchestration to make sure you've got kids in the right place and teachers and lighting and uh, press pool, all of those things, uh, those details that are so significant. Uh, and then of course, once the, uh, the second plane, uh, hit the world trade center, uh, everything started to change and there, there may not have been, uh, this kind of contingency, uh, in your playbook. Well, you're absolutely right, Boyd. Uh, we were there, uh, to do an education reform event at a school, elementary school. And as we're pulling up to the school, the first plane hit, and we're literally slowing to a stop. The president's talking to uh, Condoleezza Rice, who's National Security Advisor. And then we immediately took him into a holding room. We always have a room adjacent to the event room where the president's going to be, has a secure telephone on it. You know, we all went in there. The you know, president gets on the phone with the vice president. Of course, we've got a classroom full of children and teachers waiting for us next door. So we're already aware that the first plane had hit, but the president went in and did the event in the classroom. While we, while he was in there, the second plane hit. Yeah. And while we were suspicious when the first plane hit, when the second one hit, we knew this was you know, terrorist attacks. Yeah. And uh, just watching that play, of course, many of us have memories of, of watching Andy Card uh, lean over and whisper into the president's ear. Uh, the president uh, deciding to continue on with the the kids to finish that out in the proper way, uh, and then describe uh, kind of how the playbook unfolded after that. Well, the president finished the event in the classroom, came back in the holding room, a bunch of staff in there, including Ari Fleischer, who was press secretary, and they wrote out a statement. And because we had an auditorium full of parents and students and faculty for the president to give the second half of the event. So we, of course, tore up the playbook at that point. But it was a great opportunity for the president to address the nation uh, because the press were already in the room. So I would say most of the people in the room had no idea what was going on a thousand miles to the north. So when the president made the statement about the terrorist attack, I remember looking at the faces of some of the school kids and they were literally like, what? What's what the president was talking about education? He's telling us it was a terrorist attack. So we immediately got out of there, got in the motorcade, uh, headed toward the airport. Well, uh, Air Force One is a 747. That day it took off like an F-18. We we got out of there very quickly. Wow. And so just describe for us what the the feelings, what the mood was on Air Force One. Um, you know, within moments you had to be the only airplane in the sky other than maybe some protection um, what was that? What was the feeling like? Uh, what were the conversations like aboard Air Force One on 9/11? Well, everybody had a had a, a job to do. Obviously, the Secret Service and the military office uh, folks that were with us, including the director uh, who was traveling with us, because we had an overnight stay. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna go land at a secure site. Uh, what 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 better place than a you know uh, Air Force base with B-52s? with nuclear weapons, and uh, so we went to Barksdale Air Force Base. But everybody, again, had a, had a job to do, and, you know, we, we had peeled off some of the congressional delegation. As I mentioned, we had Secretary Page with us. He's in the line of succession for the presidency, mm-hmm. so he definitely couldn't go with us. So we left him in, in Florida, and we went to Barksdale first, and uh, the, the base didn't have a lot of time to get ready for us, but they knew we were coming, and needless to say, they were pretty surprised when we landed. Yeah. Wow. I, uh, 
Uh, I actually want to hit just one thing you mentioned there just for our listeners. You talked about that line of succession uh, and not having someone in that line of succession on the same plane at the same time while the the country was under attack. Uh, That's one of those little nuances that, again, we don't really think about unless you're kind of behind the scenes thinking that through and saying, no, you can't fly with us uh, because you're you're in that critical chain of command. Well, absolutely correct. And Secretary Page, who was just a wonderful man, just took it in stride of the military aid and said, sir, you have to stay. He goes, I understand. Of course, now, you know, there's all different protocols invoked at that point, which I won't go into. But, you know, he, he was he knew he had to stay behind. Yeah. Wow. Well, as uh, as you got to the uh, to the base, you have uh, described this as uh, kind of one of those otherworldly out of a movie kind of scenes as you uh, as you got to the uh, the air force base there and went into the the bunker just give us a, a quick description of what that looked like what that felt like going in well the first base we went to was barksdale in shreveport um, which by the way they were running a drill that morning an annual drill on the nuclear readiness called global guardian and there were b-52s parked uh, along the, the runway there wingtip to wingtip with their engines running when we left, wow. uh, and by the way, when we landed, the, the commanding officer of the base literally comes up to us and tell you know, ask us, "Where do you want these planes?" And they're ready to take off. And he said, "Well, General, you maybe jump jumping the gun a little here." But um, so the bunker was our next stop, which was off at Air Force Base uh, Stratcom uh, outside of uh, Omaha, Nebraska. And of course, this whole time, President Bush, is, as we all know, was wanting to get back to Washington D.C. Um, but, you know, the vice president, the chief of staff, Secret Service, you know, were adamant that it was too soon to uh, uh, to return. But uh, as, as far as the bunker, when we uh, this often had more time to prepare for us. So they literally had hundreds of airmen with guns lighting our motorcade route. Uh, we motorcaded maybe a mile and a half from the plane to, to an office building, which was the headquarters. We thought, well, we'll just go in the office building, and the, the base commander leading us says, no, go this way. So it's literally a, a, like a concrete bunker. It turned out to be it's the fire exit. And um, instead of going in the main way and taking the elevators, we took the stairs. And I'll just tell you, we went pretty deep underground. <laughs> so much I remember looking at someone saying, there is an elevator out here, right? And they <laughs> kind of laughed. And they said, yes, there is. As we look back 20 years since 9-11, very pleased to have joining us today Brian Montgomery, again, former Deputy Secretary of Housing and Urban Development and Commissioner of the Federal Housing Administration. Uh, and on the date of 9-11, he was the Director of Presidential Advance in the Executive Office of the President under George W. Bush. And uh, Brian has been uh, kind enough to walk us through some of the things that were happening on that day. And in this segment, we want to get to uh, some of the places that you went uh, with the president once you got back to Washington and then uh, out to Pennsylvania. Uh, but first, I, I want to ask you, just as you observed what was happening again uh, on Air Force One, uh, in the bunker, uh, traveling back to Washington, uh, what did you see and sense in terms of uh, President Bush, in terms of leadership or the staff? Obviously, it's often the staff around them that impacts these crucial moments uh, in history. Any observations from that? I tell you, Boyd, it was coming at us so quickly. Uh, everybody just kept their head down, did their job. Mm. But there was one thing that we all sensed that we didn't really acknowledge later. 
including every American, and that is the trajectory of that presidency, of Bush's presidency, changed that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, presidents come in with a domestic agenda, with an agenda on foreign affairs. But from that point on, the focus, the main focus of our administration was protecting the homeland. Yeah. And uh, something we've certainly have acknowledged since then. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it was truly a, a day that uh, forever changed us, yeah. changed the country. Uh, and so I want to pick up as, as you continue on, as you uh, uh, went to Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and to the Pentagon. Tell us a little bit about uh, those experiences. Well, Shanksville is, is uh, we didn't go there for a year. The president wanted to go there, uh, but in, talk, in talks we had with folks in Pennsylvania, including the, at the time Governor Ridge's office, it was still a crime scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, there wasn't much to see. And so we didn't go there till. Uh, September 11, 2002. As you can imagine, uh, once we landed in Washington uh, the, the evening of September 11, the president was uh, really eager to go to the Pentagon. So early the next morning, uh, none of us got much sleep. I went over there with some, some of my staff, some military office staff, Secret Service. We met with uh, Secretary Rumsfeld's chief of staff and his folks, they described to us what happened the day before. And then we took our van to the other side of the Pentagon where the plane had impacted. And it didn't really dawn on us till we got there. And I said, you know, this is the site of a plane crash, you know, a plane that had crashed into the, you know, the very symbol of America's military might. And uh, it was, it was, it was just a, a sight to behold, as you can imagine. So the president was busy throughout the day, as you can imagine, so he didn't get over there until later that afternoon, and uh, you know, Secretary Rumsfeld was with him, and uh, you know they they toured the crash site as such as they could, shaking hands with first responders, with military, with you know, firemen, you name it. Uh, it was just everybody was so emotional, and I think we all remember you know the spur of the moment that you know, the flag you know being unfurled from the. Adjacent to the where the plane had crashed into the Pentagon, right? People chanting USA. It was just it was overwhelming. Yeah, but then it just grew completely silent again. It was uh, it was it was you know something I'll never forget. Yeah, and then finally let's go uh, to uh, a few days later, September fourteenth, two thousand and one, uh, when you went uh, to Ground Zero uh, with President Bush. Of course, everyone remembers those images of him uh, standing on a pile of rubble with a blowhorn. Uh, tell us your experience there, and then finish up, if you would, uh, sharing what happened when you got back uh, that evening and kind of had a chance to to take it all in. So, yeah, no, ab- absolutely. I mean, ground zero, uh, we had sent an advance team there to work with the mayor, uh, the mayor's office and the governor's office, and there wasn't much of a plan. We went to Seven World Trade Center first, which most people don't know. Um, and then we went over to, you know, where the Twin Towers had been. And, uh, you know, he was shaking hands, you know, rallying the, the the troops, thanking people. And then Paul Rove and I were standing over near where a flattened uh, FDNY suburban was. You could see the bright red paint. And there were a bunch of first responders standing on top of it. Uh, Andy Card, White House Chief of Staff, said, go find somewhere for the president to talk to the to everyone. And Someone had, had, had secured a, a bullhorn, a megaphone, if you will. So we went back over there and, and you know, 
say, is this sturdy? And everybody said, yeah, it's sturdy. So we went back and said, just follow us, you know, go over to this, to this flattened SUV. And mm. as we're walking up to it, all the firemen started jumping off of it, <clears throat> except one who was a little older than his colleagues. As we know now, he was retired yeah. and had gone down there to help. And, uh, of course, we all know what happened after that. And I, I wouldn't do it, do it justice trying to repeat what the what the president said. But it yeah. was, again, just one of those moments in history that was just incredible. Yeah, being there uh, for that moment. And then uh, you went back home at the end of the day. And uh, just uh, give us a quick description of what that was like, what you did, and what you've kept from that day. Well, certainly, we uh, we helicoptered back to McGuire Air Force Base, and we, we took two little planes because the president was going to Camp David from there. So we left the big plane there. We we took two little planes to an air, air base outside of Frederick. You know, he, he waved goodbye to us, which was, we thought was, you know, you know, just given the circumstances. And, you know, we thought, well, we're going to get to go home tonight, be with our loved ones, and he's, you know, going to meet with his war cabinet. So I, I got Home that evening, late, just completely exhausted, and uh, and my shoes were caked in this in this chalky paste because it had rained that morning in New York, and all that dust and powder turned to this paste. And uh, anyway, I, I, I days went by, and I just couldn't bring myself to clean those shoes, which I don't know why to this day. But uh, so I put them in a in a plastic bag, wrapped them in a plastic box, and they remain untouched to this day. Mm. So powerful. Uh, Brian Montgomery, we appreciate you uh, giving us that uh, unique perspective of being with the president on 9-11 and throughout that day and through many of those important and historic days thereafter. They were truly days that forever changed us, changed the nation, and uh, changed the world in so many different ways. Uh, your perspective and your insight to, to really help us see the heroes and the heroines uh, is, uh, is such a powerful thing and so important to all of us. Thank you for joining us uh, on this day, especially. Well, thank you, boy, for having me, and may God continue to bless the United States of America. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.